0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coco Pods. This is a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation. I'm Dr. Bola Sagadi. I'm a women's health specialist. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist, family physician, and talk about everything relating to women's health. Today, we are fortunate to have with us, all the way from California, Dr. Pringles Miller. And, you know, you talk about just even pouring ourselves into this profession, you're a surgeon, I'm a surgeon, it takes even a lot to be trained as a surgeon. But in your paper, in your other paper, where you talked about, you know, women, inclusion of women in surgery, you know, just re-envisioning the whole thing. Women surgeons, despite all that training, you know, unfortunately, one quarter of Women, general surgery residents leave training before graduation. A woman surgeon is told you cannot be a surgeon and a mother. You know, you and I know that this is a myth, but can you talk about some of the truth and challenges in this, you know, being a a woman surgeon and a mother, a person with a family?
1: Sure. I give women in surgery so much credit for all of what they've endured and had to sort of navigate through all of the different responsibilities that they have. And, you know, in my opinion, women surgeons are some of the most remarkable, resilient, intelligent, resourceful, people that I've ever met. I still hear stories of young women who are interested in surgery being told by a male faculty person that surgery is not the right specialty for you because it's too hard to be a surgeon and have a role in your family life as a wife and a mother. I mean, this is still happening today with men telling women they don't have the right to be surgeons because of other obligations for the women who have struggled through doing their med school training and then doing their residency training i mean all of us have stories about discrimination based on sex or race or intersectional identities because the bottom line is that this is still a white male field and until we re-envision who is a surgeon and the, we have the vision of inclusivity about who a surgeon is, where we're no longer comparing a non-white male surgeon to someone else, you know, where all of us are just surgeons and we're not the woman surgeon or not the brown woman surgeon. You know, we're going to have a, an uphill battle. I would just say for the people listening who aspire to be surgeons and who are in training and maybe early in practice that it's just going to take all of us going through this to move the needle so that the archetype, which was sort of, you know, what we used in our paper, is different, so that the landscape looks different, so that the workforce establishes what the rules of engagement are. Because we've been subjected to the rules that were established decades ago, and the rules are slow to adapt. We need to make new rules. In fact, I was encouraged, but it's not enough to see that a woman posted, and there's a petition, actually, or a letter that's open for a signature, posted a, a letter to the American Board of Surgery regarding maternity leave. So this is related you know, to your field and to all of the women out there. It has been, up until now, that women in general surgery who would be you know diplomats of the American Board of Surgery had to take vacation for maternity leave. Had to take vacation for maternity leave.
0: Yeah, I'm one of those that happened to me. My maternity leave had to be my vacation time.
1: Right. And as a resident most programs only allot four weeks of vacation. So you're talking about, you know, having a vaginal delivery or a C-section and going back to work within four weeks after you deliver a child with none of the bonding, you know, that's recommended by the pediatric association, you know, not subscribing to any of the other recommendations regarding potentially breastfeeding recommended by the pediatric association, you know, complete denial of what's best for this child, what's best for the parent, the parents, the the milieu of the, the family. And why is that? It's because men don't have children and residencies are predicated on the needs and of men, not on the needs of women. And so you know the idea that in twenty twenty one women have been entering into surgical general surgery albeit in really small numbers, but since the 1950s perhaps, that it's taken till now 70 years to modify the American Board of Surgery's criteria about time off relative to maternity. So now there's six weeks, and it's not predicated on vacation. So that's a landmark change, But I think most of us would still say six weeks is not enough time for a young mother to establish a new routine and bonding with their infant child. And so, yes, I'm happy that that's a new guideline, but I'm still dissatisfied that that's not enough. So I think we just have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of tradition involved. There's not a lot of folks sitting at the table that are lobbying for a different set of rules of engagement, even though the makeup of the profession is changing over time. So like one of the things that we wrote in our paper was that we need to change the profession to meet the needs of the workforce, rather than the profession enforcing rules on the workforce, because clearly the demographics of the workforce has changed. And so we said inclusion for women in surgery will occur when the archetype of who and what a surgeon is reflects the emerging diversity in our profession.
0: And I also hope that someday women will earn at least The same as their male counterparts because you know, women surgeons still earn less money than their male counterparts. But just to go on to with this maternal mortality, morbidity issue, I mean, do you have any real life story of? You deal with a lot of people of a woman that maybe died or nearly died or became severely ill from something you could relate directly to diversity, you know, equity, inclusion related issues and complications. And what could have been, you know, the index problem? Can you tell us some more about this if you have any?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a couple thoughts come to mind. One is, you know, there's still, a real challenge in black women being heard and being listened to being believed. And we've definitely seen evidence of that recently with COVID. I'm blanking on the name of that doctor's name right now, but she videotaped herself in the hospital. The point is that, you know, we're not seeing black women being taken seriously. And if The interactions between patient and clinician aren't such that there's respect and dignity within the doctor-patient relationship. There's going to be a loss of information, and therefore that loss of information can translate to increased risk, increased morbidity and mortality, and poor outcomes, and I was going to say a couple things about yes, my personal experience. So, when I was a palliative medicine fellow, I did a study that was predicated on the knowledge that we have that African Americans, Black patients, are treated for their pain suboptimally relative to their white counterparts. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with mortality, but it does have to do with morbidity and satisfaction and outcomes and. So what I did is I designed a retrospective chart review on looking at patients who were admitted to the oncology service for refractory pain from their malignancies. And these were malignancies only that didn't have sort of a behavioral component to them. So I eliminated lung cancer and I eliminated liver cancer for the association of smoking and alcohol use because I didn't want those factors clouding the care you know people can project onto other people well you deserve this because you were a smoker or you drank alcohol I didn't want that to enter into the data so I looked at different demographic variables like race and age categories young age mid-age and then older age and found that the category of people whose pain was managed the worst and didn't meet their expectations was the middle-aged black women. Of all of the three age groupings and racial categories, it was middle-aged black women who had their pain needs managed the most suboptimally. And this was all pretty much nursing data and interactions of nursing with physicians as it related to all of the things that get documented for pain scores, time to revisiting pain score. If there was a therapeutic intervention, was it successful? Was it not successful? And so that, you know, I was a middle-aged brown woman at the time that I did that work. And it was reflective of other articles that we've seen about black children who have appendicitis not getting the same pain medication and so on and so forth. And so we're seeing this, you know, play out multiple times. The other Case that I was going to share that has more to do with the death was a woman who was being seen for metastatic breast cancer, middle aged, and a black woman who was really at a point in her trajectory where comfort focused care was the most appropriate form of care for her. There was no other curative option there was probably not even an option to try to contain the cancer at this point in time. And she had developed bleeding in her thoracic cavity. She had developed bleeding in her abdominal cavity. And as a result of the catastrophic events related to the cancer and the idea that her chest and her abdomen could be decompressed she was seen by surgery, and surgery decided to operate on her and basically violate her body with interventions that solved the compression question, but didn't solve anything that had to do with symptomatic relief or life prolongation, and And I just felt really saddened. and this could have easily happened to a person who was not black, but the idea that there wasn't a conversation that was an honest conversation about comfort-focused care and that she was whisked away to the operating room to fix an unfixable problem, only never to wake up again, was really devastating to me. Because I, I wondered, would there have been a conversation if she had been a man? Would there have been a conversation if she had been a white woman? I mean, we know the horrible history of Sims. J. Marion Sims, you always have to ask yourself the question, why wasn't there a conversation, an honest conversation about where she was in the stage of her disease and at the end of her life where her death could have been much more dignified? And and I frankly just didn't feel like her death was dignified with her body being violated in every cavity possible for no benefit. You know, maybe going under anesthesia and never waking up is a dignified, peaceful death, but she couldn't have any closure with her family. It was over before there was any recognition that it was time to close out her life and potentially have conversations with her her family members, you know, before she, she died. And I had written a poem about this because the situation really haunted me in a way that was both from the work that I do in death and dying, but also just having to ask the question, would this have happened if she wasn't a black woman? All
0: I want time. you to read the poem, but I think, was it Susan Moore? Is that the name you it are looking? Okay. Okay. Yes, yeah, yes. It was Susan Moore.
1: Thank yes. yeah. yeah. you. Yeah, it was Susan Moore. You know, we worry a lot about our sisters and brothers who aren't in medicine because they're just so much more unaware of the nuance of being in the system, but, you know, when you have a person who's a sister, who's a physician, who understands what goes on, and who still cannot have voice, it's it's just uh, devastating.
0: Um, please read us that poem. All I, right, thank yeah, you. Thank you. So
1: the title of the poem is Red Sea, and this was published in the Journal of Palliative Medicine, in 2019 you left us on saint valentine's day i barely knew you a shrouded mystery speechless and private yet so many images of you haunt me fear-ridden gaunt face blood rushing into your chest there was no baby in that pregnant-sized belly a body unrecognizable you were in visceral crisis A red sea swooshing inside would soon be set free. How could this be? I barely knew you, DJ, but I wanted to. A woman scholar my age, black and beautiful, so much I would never understand. Fluid was suffocating you, unconscious while your body was hemorrhaging. Did you feel love on this last Valentine's Day? Privacy was honored. Even those who loved you didn't know until you were gone. After a red sea flowed vigorously out of you rather than rhythmically within. Death was inevitable, and yet you never wanted to discuss it. Did we honor your privacy, or did we read you wrong? Now your silence haunts me.
0: Wow. You know... Dr. Mila, if you were going to just give a woman of color out there in closing, just advice as to their health care to make sure that they're doing something about their health care so that there's no abnormal outcome from not doing what they could have done. So in closing, I want you to speak to two things. Speak to that minority woman out there, the patient, and also speak to that minority physician, a woman physician, female physician out there. What can they do just to help their situation to be able to help their patients?
1: Yeah. So for the patient, I would say trust your instincts. And with that implies to me is that when a patient understands, a minority woman patient understands that this just doesn't feel right, they're not being listened to, they're right. And what that's going to require is aligning with all of the allies that you have. and So casting a broad net in your community to make sure that you have advocates. We all need advocates because sometimes we just can't get the point across. And there are Sometimes, you know, within inpatient settings and maybe even within the outpatient setting, patient advocacy offices that could be tapped into, now that may not really be so successful. And it's also really important to have personal advocates that you know and trust to come together, again, as a network, so that it's just not one voice. And I think, you know, there's power in numbers, and so you just really have to establish that advocacy group that you can trust and rely on to help you get your point across. And so I would empower people to to realize that they're not alone and they need to enlist the support of the people around them so that they have a bigger presence in the system because, unfortunately, we are marginalized, and sometimes we just cannot make our needs known with our singular voice. And I think that that's true, you know, for physicians from the standpoint of phoning a friend. I mean, this need to align with other advocates, whether you're a patient or a physician, is ever present right now. I mean, we are a community of people who need to work as a community to get the needs of our patients and the needs of our physicians satisfied and met. I think for physicians who are struggling to make their care centered in the care of their patients, if, for example, they're a patient advocate and they're not being listened to, You know, it's the same sort of thing. You have to tap into the power. You have to tap into your network. You have to make yourself bigger. You have to get that support not only for yourself so that you're not vulnerable as the physician, but get that support so that you're also being able to provide evidence-based care to your patient. Because if you're putting forth what's patient-centered, evidence-based care for a patient and you're not getting your needs met then there's a problem with the system and that just needs to be exposed and it's just a work in progress I mean you know there just aren't enough of us we just have to stick together I mean we have to stick together as a patient group because we're all going to be patients at some point if we haven't been already you know it's a recurring issue and we just have to stick together as a physician group I mean that would be my parting words and I think just to plug Physician Just Equity, if you are a woman and underrepresented minority clinician and you're running up into problems with your supervisor, your employer, just know that we are here to help. We can't solve all of these problems, we don't have all the answers, but we do have a collective of individuals with a wealth of wisdom that we want to impart. To people so that they don't have to learn some of these lessons the hard way. We don't need to reinvent the wheel with every situation. I think that we can help each other out to become more empowered and effective in getting the outcomes that we want.
0: Well, Dr. Mila, thank you so much for your time. You know, this is just Amazing! I know you are an extremely busy woman. I really appreciate your time and your insight into this problem. So thank you so very much. The poem is going to be available on our website, the poem that you read, and also the information for Physician Just Equity. So thank you so much for your time. We are very appreciative of you.
1: I'm appreciative of you, too, and all the work you're doing. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you on the podcast.
0: Thank you. Have a good afternoon.
1: You, too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.